Hey there, I'm Tal Zlotnitsky from Ignite IT Consulting. You know me from the Braving Business Podcast, but when I'm not behind the mic, I'm helping tech startups and established companies ignite their full potential. I also help entrepreneurs and businesses in distress reset for success. With over three decades of entrepreneurial success, I bring hands-on experience to drive growth, navigate turnarounds, raise capital, and lead through innovation. Whether it's executive coaching or strategic transformation, I'm here to turn your business challenges into success stories. Visit IgniteITConsulting.com and let's spark that change together. That's IgniteITConsulting.com. Your journey to business brilliance starts now. And one last quick thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please stay on after the show to learn more about the Braving Business Podcast and other great episodes for you to discover. And now, let's get the show started. Well, hello there. Hello there, sir. Fresh off the book signing uh, tour. Woo. How life, was that? Li- life is hard as a as a star, you know. It's hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was good. It was good. You know, Kara's had a bunch of book signings, but uh, this one's kind of special. Uh, it's um, the book just launched yesterday. It's going to be in um, all the Barnes and Nobles and WalMarts nationwide, and uh, you know, it's it's a rom com. In a time where uh, it's called the takeover, and it's a rom com in the time where you know we could use a little laugh, so mm. it's good stuff. We can use a little laugh, and you know, if we're talking about uh, takeovers, and Larry will know a thing or two about mm. takeovers. He's been involved in some takeovers, <laughs> uh, I, I think, right, Larry? Yeah, quite, quite a few, too. actually. <laughs> Larry might know a little something about entertainment as well. I'm not sure. I'm just a I'm just, few I'm things. I, I'm, yeah, I suspect he may. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, PJ, why don't we tell our uh, our audience who we're who we have with us today oh. is uh, is uh, entertainment royalty oh. and uh, and get our show on the road a thousand percent. So today on the Braving Business Podcast, we have the privilege, and I mean that, of hosting Larry Namer, the president and CTO of Maton Global Entertainment Group. The CEO. Did I did I not? Say I don't think CTO? he's in technology. Oh, that's you said CTO. Oh, sorry. Yeah. CEO. Well, you know. You know what, though? I don't put it past him. He can probably do everything. Uh, Larry, everything. That's true. (laughs) Larry is an entertainment maverick and the founder and pioneering spirit behind E Entertainment Television. Uh, Huge impact on my life and my wife's life. So thank you for that, Larry. With a career that exemplifies the essence of ingenuity, Larry's willingness to challenge the status quo and knack for innovation has reshaped how all of us consume entertainment. His journey from the cable-slinging streets of Manhattan to the glitz of global TV is a masterclass in vision, tenacity, and disruption. The company Larry founded and currently runs, Maton, a.k.a. LJN Media Group, is an important player in the global entertainment industry, particularly in China, where their flagship series, Hello Hollywood!, is shown on over 40 television stations and reaches over 1 billion, that's with a B, Mandarin-speaking viewers. Larry, we're honored you've chosen to spend a little bit of time with us on our podcast and with our audience. Welcome to the Braving Business Podcast. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, should should be fun to be part of this for the next uh, 45 minutes or an hour. Wonderful. Sounds great. Well, Larry, we, we're, we're truly honored to have you with us. And, uh, and we were thrilled when, when your team reached out to us. 
Um, we'd love to start with the early days. You, uh, yeah, and by the way, PJ, what do we mean by cable slinging streets? That's that's I'd never heard that term before. Yeah, you know what? We're gonna find out. <laughs> okay. Well, Larry, let's talk about those early days. Uh, you know, before e entertainment television was the household name that it is today, and as PJ has said, it has completely changed how entertainment, what entertainment is, and how entertainment is perceived. And we'll dig into that a bit in the next couple of questions. What what inspired you to even get into the cable industry? How did you end up? I, Going to uh, where you went. I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, you know, a um, uh, family. You know, basically immigrant stock. And you know, my father drove a Pepsi Cola truck, and my mother worked for the Department of Social Services, and um, you know, public schools and all of that. And then um, when I I was the first kid ever to go to college in the family, so when I got out, I thought getting a job is easy. And then I found out it's not so easy. And um, so I I knew somebody who was in the electrical workers union who I said, I need a, you know, kind of a, a temporary job until I figure out what I do with my economics degree. And they said, well, we just organized this thing. It's called cable television. I'm not really sure what it is. Um, but, you know, we know we organized them. They're now part of the union. And you could go see this guy and give him, you know, tell him I sent you and they'll probably give you a temp job. So I did that. And um, company was called um, Sterling Manhattan, which was the first big urban cable system in the U.S. And um, I joined the union. They gave me a job. Um, I was I was I was the assistant splicer underground Manhattan. So I used every day, 30 in the morning, go down under the streets of New York with the roaches and the rats and put the wires together. And uh, I kind of grew from there. Um, you know, part of it, it was, it was very uh, early days of cable. And, you know, most of the folks that work with me underground, you know, certainly didn't have college degrees and most didn't have high school degrees. And, um, so I kind of rose through the ranks there fairly quickly because I know how to read the instruction booklets and use the equipment and do all of that. And then, um, you know, then they asked me, um, they said, well, you're good at talking to people, you know, who come from the Harvards and Yales and stuff like that, because Time Inc. had bought the company. So, it was, you know, all the, uh, the Ivy Leaguers running it and, um, so they actually made me a union official, and I was the vice chairman of the Cable Workers of America kind of thing. I think I was 23 years old, and I had to negotiate contracts with them, uh, you know, with all those folks from Time Incorporated and stuff like that. And then, you know, eventually they wanted me to go into management. I refused. Um, they kept asking me, and finally I did it. And uh, you know, so I ended up in Manhattan Cable. The I was director of operations. So, yes, with technology, I know way more than I should. I had. Well, there you go. The, PJ had it right. You you could have been CTO. Slinging, right? slinging cable. Yeah, yeah slinging cable. Yeah, all the operating groups reported to me. So, I would think I was twenty five, and I had installation, construction, engineering. Um, all of those things reporting to me. And uh, I ran that for a while. And then 
they made me the head of corporate development trying to find new uses of cable television. So, which is kind of fun. It was pre-internet and we were doing remote medical diagnostics and data transfers and all of that. So I had, I had to learn technology pretty quick. And, uh, you know, then from there, um, all the big cities started to think about cable as more than just good reception. And there was a group out of, um, Canada that won the franchise for Los Angeles, and they were going to build the first two-way interactive cable system ever built, but the city of Los Angeles insisted it would all go underground uh, as opposed to telephone poles. Well, there was only one character in the U.S. who knew how to build underground cable systems, and that was me. So um, they interviewed me. I refused, said I'm, uh, you know, not a... uh, not an LA guy, but um, they managed to convince me. So anyway, that's how I ended up in LA. Wow! And then and then you started the Paragon, that is E Entertainment, which um, you know, hey, my before I even came on, came on, my wife asked me to thank you for Talk Soup. Um, that's how she got all of her all of her tidbits and news on what's going on in the entertainment world. So, uh, we're very thankful for that show. It was it was absolutely wonderful, and all the other great shows that you had on there. Um, e Entertainment would love to delve into into how that got started, but from a from a general perspective, it it really has become synonymous with what we call celebrity culture, right? And so, do you foresee that this niche? of of this kind of culture becoming a cornerstone of entertainment television or 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 did you I'm sorry did you foresee it becoming such a cornerstone of entertainment culture or was it more like just luck um a little bit of both you know people you know would want to hear that this was some grand plan or whatever but i you know i got recruited to come out to la which i did they offered me like crazy amount of money four times what i made in new york and stuff like that. So I built that cable system, but then the company from Canada um, sold it and they wanted me to go to Toronto. And I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't go from like Brooklyn to LA to go back to, you know, to go to Canada. So I'm not doing that. So my, my friend Alan and I, you know, being naive and not realizing that people don't start TV companies and TV networks, we just came up with this idea you know, we looked at, say, MTV. Okay, there was music on television, and MTV became music all the time, you know, back in that day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we said, what they do is so simple. They stand the host in front of a green screen and go, and Madonna has a new video. I said, you know, let's take the the entertainment world. Let's take entertainment tonight, 24 hours a day. And instead of Madonna has a new video, and as Schwarzenegger has a new movie. Um, so that's how the, the idea kind of formulated. And, um, we weren't smart enough to know that you can't do this. And, you know, we would go to people like, oh, you know what? That's not a bad idea, but you're not Rupert Murdoch. You're not Ted Turner. You're not Time Warner. And, um, so we just kept, you know, going and, um, eventually, you know, at that time, the going rate to start a TV network was somewhere between 60 and a hundred million dollars. And start after, one. yeah, and then after three and a half years, we realized nobody was giving us that money. Um, and we met a banker on uh, Wall Street, a young guy. When we walked in his office, he had movie posters all over the wall and 
you know, Alan and I kind of looked at each other and said, this is weird. And the guy's going, oh, I was the entertainment reporter for my college newspaper. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he goes, I really want to do this. And I said, great. Could you give us $100 million rather than 60 so we could do everything we want? And he went, oh, no, I'm only allowed to sign for two and a half. And I went, well, what, what are we supposed to do with two and a half million dollars? It's like 60 to 100. Because that's all I can sign for. Anyway, we we said, you know what? After three and a half years, we'll figure it out. We took the money and, uh, you know, we got it on the air. But, you know, we were obviously very tight on money. And that's how things like um, Talk Soup came about. <laughs> you know, we said, we're not going to make movies and we're not going to make fancy television. And Talk Soup was interesting because when Alan and I came up with it, uh, you know, people said, wait, Larry, you lost your mind. You want to do a TV show that makes fun of TV shows. I went, exactly. That's what I want to do. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody thought that was a loony idea and Talk Soup ran 26 years. So, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic TV for me. Well, you know the the interesting thing about that show and other shows, and I was uh, I was in my my teens and twenties. Uh, I mean, I think the entertainment uh, came on the air when I was in my teens for sure, um, and uh, it it became what it was became the background to me sitting in my room doing work. I mean, my homework. I'd have entertainment in the background, and um, <laughs> it. it Ultimately, it wasn't it, it, at the time. It, it was because it was cool. Um, you know, everyone was everyone was watching. Everyone was talking about it, uh, and so that's what exposed me to it initially. And then it became just a routine part of my life. And I'm sure that that was true for a lot of people. Now, as you said, and it was funny that you said it that way. You said, "Well, people would like to hear that." You know, it was some master plan. Well, not on the Braving Business Podcast. One of the things that uh, we uh, frankly take pride in is that we are not about pretending that, uh, th there is this master of the universe race of people who are able to, uh, envision massive things long before anyone else can. And, and, and su their success is kind of prescribed, uh, or, you know, it, it's written in the stars ultimately. Yes, absolutely. It takes a lot of talent. It takes a lot of vision, but it takes an enormous amount of luck. And there's no question that, breaking through and having the impact that you had with the entertainment uh, took a great deal of that. In addition to becoming synonymous with celebrity culture, you became known for pioneering reality TV, which was not a thing. Um, so how do you view the evolution of that genre? It's, it's gone, you know, a <laughs> hundred X what, where you guys started it, but um, how do you view it? What do you think the impact has been on the entertainment industry? Well, you know, um, the, yeah, what's that saying is, uh, you know, about uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, we had no money, so we had to be really creative with the programming. And so with things like Talk Soup and then, you know, people thought we were nuts then. And then Alan and I met this tall radio guy in an elevator in New York, and he was telling us that he can do, uh, you know, all this um, programming and stuff. And. I, we kind of watched this thing, and it reminded me there was an old TV show though called WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh, I love that show. Um, and so when we went and looked at Howard Stern's radio show, we went, I went, this is KRP in Cincinnati, but real life. And, um, you know, went back to the team and said, hey, I want to put cameras on this guy's radio 
studio and they went, Larry, you know, we thought you were out of your mind when you did Talk Soup, but now your radio has been dead for 40 years. And they didn't get it. They didn't get that it was KR. It was real life KRP. And, um, you know, Howard obviously went on to do pretty well and um, pretty well. Yes, indeed. And that stuff. And, you know, we um, we really paid a lot of attention to what our gut feels were in terms of what the audience was looking for. We, We did no research. I mean, we did not hire research companies or anything like that. It was entirely gut feel and instinct and. Yeah, quite honestly, when you have 24 hours of data fill, you, you, you could fill it with like whatever pops in your head that morning, you know, and a lot of times people would just drop by and, you know, say, you know, Paul or Abdul and, you know, people like that. And they'd say, uh, oh, you know, we had nothing to do. Could we host? And we're like, yeah, turn the lights on. And we turn the lights on and they would host. Um, and people loved it. It was, you know, we really started the whole thing with red carpets and things like that. And people don't realize that the the first award show we ever did, um, we applied for press passes to the Academy Awards and we were rejected. They said, oh, you're some stupid little cable network. No, we're not giving you press passes. So actually the producer, I and a little team, we climbed over the fence with the equipment and we snuck onto the red carpet and we were talking to people about what we were interested in. Not like, so Tom Cruise, tell us about your next project, but like, what the hell are you wearing? You know, where'd you get that? <laughs> and, um, and you know, people responded to it. They're going, that's amazing. It felt like we were someplace we weren't supposed to be. And we're going, yeah, because we weren't supposed to be. So we managed to stay on the carpet until security caught us and threw us out. Um, but that, that kind of led us to, you know, the other things like, you know, fashion police with Joan Rivers and stuff yep. like that, because we knew people loved that stuff. That you is know, one, one of the, okay. one of the people I just want to talk, talk about one uh, favorite uh, host of yours. And he was the first host of talk soup, I believe Greg Kinnear, who was not at all famous. Uh, I mean, you guys more or less discovered Greg Kinnear who ended up becoming, um, you know, through the nineties and into the two thousands of a very prominent presence. How how did you? I mean, did you stumble upon it, Greg Kinnear? I mean, did you know when you saw the man, this guy has got some some serious talent? Um, well, you know, it is a great example of sometimes it takes me a lot for me to realize. Uh, but uh, we were out before we launched. We were out pitching all these um, film companies to advertise, um, and we didn't have any. You know, again, we had two and a half million dollars, so. Alan and I were basically going, you know, we were everything. We were the producers, we were the ad sales guys. So uh, we went to a um, uh, a film company, a little film company makes like three monster movies a year or something for 25 grand, you know, back in that day. And um, so I had an appointment I left my house and I get to the place. It's like early in the morning and a receptionist says, oh, we've been trying to call you and tell you not to come. Because Mr. whatever his name was, uh, the head of marketing didn't show, you know, didn't come to work today. So I was like, oh, God, you know, I came straight here that, you know, um, is there anybody I can talk to? And she said, well, his assistant's here. I go, well, could he buy anything? She goes, no, not really. I went, no, a waste of time. I said, but you know what? I'm here. Let me leave the stuff. So, you know, I go and talk to the assistant whose name is Greg Kinnear. Oh, my goodness. you know, we're going through the whole thing and I'm going, now we could put you between a Madonna video and the Schwarzenegger, you know, movie trailer and 
da, 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 da. and he's like, well, who's going to be the host? I go, well, uh, interviewing people and whatever. And he keeps going on. Well, you know, maybe I could host. And I'm like, yeah, well, what did you go to like, you know, acting school or something? And, you know, what were you in the film program in like Arizona or whatever? And, um, you know, he says, you know, I want them to buy advertising. So I said, okay, Tuesday, come and see Eileen. Here's the address at two o'clock and she'll, you know, she'll interview you and put you on tape. So there's this woman, Eileen Graham, who was doing all the interviews. And a lot of people don't realize. And, you know, they always say, oh, you were lucky you had all those great hosts. We weren't lucky. We realized we didn't have a lot of money and that we weren't going to make fancy movies or, you know, a fancy production, that it was going to be all about the host. So to get those first four hosts, five hosts, we ended up putting 7,200 people on tape, um, which is a lot. And um, so anyway, so, you know, the Tuesday comes around and I'm trying to figure out how to make payroll on Friday, you know, because that was always an issue. And, you know, Eileen comes in the office and says, oh, that guy is here. He wants to say hello. I'm like, look, Eileen, I, I'm really busy. I don't have time to say hello. Tell him I said hi. You know, she comes back like the next time she says, well, he's really insisting. He's, you know, does like, please say hello. And I'm like, Eileen, I'm really busy. And <laughs> I said, just take him in the studio and put him on tape. She comes back like she says, Larry, we're taping the guy. I want you to come in. And I'm like, Eileen, what was it about I'm too busy to, you know, to come in the studio that you didn't understand? Literally takes me by the ear, you know, and goes, come in the studio. So I go in the studio and she cues him and I just, he lit up the camera, just lit it up. I, I just looked and went, holy shit. Um, <laughs> and I went, that's it. That's our first host. And Greg was our first host. That is amazing. You probably have. Unfortunately, our show is like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. You probably have a good 30 days worth of stories that are just amazing about all that. I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, and, and PJ, be, before before you go to the next question, I, I you know, as I tend to do, and and, and Larry, if you've uh, listened or watched any of our shows, um, and if you haven't, you should. Um, I, I, I like to draw out lessons uh, for our audience from what we hear from the guests. And uh and and here's a couple of things that I, I drew out of the story Larry just shared. First of all, um, you need good people around you, right? It sounds like you had you had someone at your side who knew what you were looking for, who knew to draw you out of your office, pulling you by the ear, so to speak, to see something she knew would light you up and potentially can make a big difference. So we've heard people talk over and over on this podcast about how important it is to build a great team around you, people that are passionate, they understand you, they understand what you're trying to accomplish. And sometimes you're not going to see uh, the tree from the forest, but they will. And if you are fortunate enough to have them and you're uh, confident enough to lean into those skills and those people, good things will happen. So I heard that part of the story. And the other part of the story that we've heard a great deal as well is just sheer dumb luck. I mean, you ran into Greg Kinnear, who was doing something entirely different, completely by accident. And change his life. Let's 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 mention that what five or six years later he was a nominee for an Oscar. Okay, uh, I mean you changed his life, and it was because you ran into him. Let's face it. I mean I'm a person of faith, so I'd say there was some guiding hand there. Others would say complete coincidence and total luck. 
well, interesting, you, and I felt like I should bring that out, PJ. Yeah, no, 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 that, that's, a, that's a great point. But also, you know, just like Larry Kasanoff said, um, sometimes you have to have a little touch of the madness, right? And the pure fact that that uh, Larry's out there with Alan and they're like jumping the fence and they're getting on the red carpet and they're, and they're creating content that no one had ever seen before. That's moxie, right? So there's luck, obviously you're a thousand percent correct, but also that having that inner belief or that temetry to just go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to try that. No one's doing this. This is interesting. Let's see how it flies. Ah, I love it. I absolutely love it. But I have a I have a number for the both of you that I wonder if you can guess what this pertains to. If I said the word 21 million, 21 million, actually it's a time it's a time span, 21 million years. What do you think that means? 21 million years. Like that was just mentioned yesterday as a stat. 21 million years. I have no clue, hey, sir. No clue. Enlighten us. The U.S. populace consumed 21 million years worth of streaming services last year. That's how much video was watched in the U.S. cumulatively. That is nuts. <laughs> that is nuts. And, and it kind of goes into my question, Larry. So you, you know, you've been not only the, the arbiter of change, but you've also seen a change outside of, outside of your own environment the entertainment industry over these past you know decades, you see la the landscape of media and entertainment evolving. Um, how do you how do you see like uh, the streaming services finding? You know, obviously, twenty one million years of of content, it's found its niche. What do you think the future holds? Like, where where do you where are we going from here? Yeah, um, you know, in today's world. It I would not have started E as a linear TV network. I'm a huge, huge believer in streaming and on demand and stuff like that. And I, I do a lot of that these days, um, you know, particularly in China, that's literally all we do is we, we program to streamers. You know, it, it gets, you know, people go, oh, that'll never happen. And I go, you know, it's really simple. And let me give you this example. Do you want to watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it? Or do you want to watch what NBC wants you to watch when they want you to watch it? We all know the answer. Mm. So other than live sports and news, what is there that needs to be live? Um, years ago, I mean, this may sound like a crazy idea, but back in the linear TV world, when, you know, before streaming and on demand, you know, I always looked at it. I said, I watch 60 Minutes faithfully whenever I can. And I said, okay, so if we look at all the people who want to watch 60 Minutes, you know, as being 100%, but then we eliminate those who can't watch Sunday night because they're out with the family and whatever, you could, I said, why don't we just have a 60 Minutes channel and we're in 60 Minutes, 24 hours a day, you know, each week. I said, over the course of the week, you would get 100% of the people who wanted to watch 60 Minutes got to watch it. Um, you know, and now you look at, you know, with streaming and nonlinear TV, um, I, I watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it on whatever device I want to watch it on. Uh, it's going to continue to go that way. Um, you know, we, we freed up, um, you know, the last thing in the world you want to be now as a, as a job is being like the, you know, the program scheduler for NBC. I mean, who cares what they think? Um, and uh, so I, I love nonlinear. It, it's open, you know, it's a creator. It's opened up all kinds of avenues. You know, before everything was kind of restricted, you had to fit in the box. 
And, um, you know, back to, you know, one, one of the things you were saying is um, what I've always found is when you come up with an idea that is not really mainstream or hasn't been done, and you say to people, well, just imagine, you lose them. I mean, they can imagine. So that's why, you know, with Alan and I, with E and me and, you know, some of my latest stuff, um, I've just learned that if it feels good, if it's new and different and it feels good in my gut, just go for it. Um, because once they see it, they go, oh, that's what you mean. Now you should have told me that's what you wanted to do. Um, you know, uh, people can't imagine particularly media content and stuff like that when, when they haven't seen it. Even now when I pitch networks on ideas. Um, you know, the first question out of their mouth, you know, you get the, you know, low level development executives or younger development executives, they go, well, what's it like? And I'm like, it's not like anything. It's a new idea. Um, and, and those are the hardest things to get through with people, you know, because some of the stuff I'm doing now is, um, you know, it's, it's out there. It's just not part of mainstream media. Yeah. You know, it's, again, I, 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 I'm pulling a couple of really uh, interesting themes out of what you said. And so before I ask my next question, I, I want to comment on that. I think that uh, the reality that many entrepreneurs face, particularly if you're doing something innovative, is that the most likely reaction from uh, the marketplace is going to be that you're nuts. Uh, you're doing something they don't understand. It's not been done before. And the mindset is, well, if you're doing something that has been done before, um, there's probably a reason for it because you're not the only smart person. Well, the reality is actually there is, generally speaking, uh, someone or some group of people that are more thought, more innovative than others and is more of a risk-taking uh, individual or group than others, and they are going to lead. Ultimately, there's always a first. And even if you're not the first, you could still be part of a very select group of people that are doing something that for most others uh, feels too risky. Entrepreneurs, uh, generally speaking, don't see... Uh, risks the same way that people who aren't entrepreneurs do. They see the risk as part of the excitement. Uh, and as I've read about you, and uh, you know, there was a great Medium article about you, about the five things you wish you knew uh, when you started e-entertainment, uh, one thing that resonated with me that came through uh, very loudly is you're very proud of the risks you took, and you're very proud of the fact that you saw things other people didn't see. Can you talk to us about vision and what the you know what? How do you see vision as as an entrepreneur? Maybe let's step away from the specifics of what you've done and maybe talk about a more writ large. How important is it for an entrepreneur who's got a vision to to be relentless about pursuing that vision? Um, well, it's very very important and stuff. But I'm actually one of these, yeah. Uh, uh, people who kind of go against that thing, you know, follow your passion. I mean, one of the things that I do that I think is really uh, a big part of why I've been successful in a lot of things I've done is um, I self-assess. I wake up in the morning, I have 10 new ideas. I mean, why we don't know, we think it's because my mother dropped me on my head. <laughs> but, um, but at the end of the day, I go, okay, let me kind of go over that stuff. And I go over it and go, you know what? was a good idea this morning, but boy, was that a dopey one. So the one thing that we all have as entrepreneurs, whatever, is time is finite. We only have so much time. And that when you follow your passion, sometimes maybe it wasn't smart to begin with. Maybe the environment has changed. There are all kinds of things that can make what maybe was a good idea, not such a good idea. 
and people stick with it too long. So they waste their valuable time pursuing something that's never going to be, as opposed to going, hey, you know what? That was dopey. Next. And, you know, uh, and I'm a next person. I'm going, okay, bad idea. What's next? You know, and I move on quickly. So I don't waste a lot of my time. Yeah, that 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 is very similar to the fail fast uh, concept that we talked about with, uh, I believe, Fred Carey, a mm-hmm. uh, very, very successful entrepreneur who was on our show recently. And uh, and I asked him to define it because you know it's it's such a it's it's such a it sounds so easy right so flipping oh fail fast but you know effectively what is failing fast it it is about recognizing that some big or grand idea of yours isn't working uh, or isn't working in the iteration that uh, you've you've put forth and you have to pivot and for some people that feels like failure to an entrepreneur particularly entrepreneurs that recognize that. All ideas are iterative. Nothing starts and ends in the same place. To an entrepreneur that understands iteration, that movement forward is part of the process, not an indication of failure. And and as you, I mean, I think you know the first name for e entertainment, I believe, was Movie Line, right? I mean, you guys started off doing one thing, and it was very narrow, and then you saw bigger opportunity, and you didn't you didn't perceive that as some uh, acknowledgement of failure. You had a better idea. You saw a bigger vision. And you moved forward in that direction. Yeah, it's actually funny. The, the name was Movie Time. And, um, you know, way back then, don't forget, we're in the time of linear television before we have the Internet and stuff like that. And uh, one of the things that we realized, you know, that a lot of times a movie trailer is actually better than the movie. And people love movie trailers. Um, you know, and um, so I was going to take... Um, movie trailers and then combine it with the technology that weather channel used to be able to provide local movie um information time schedules all of that so that you could see a trailer for a new movie but regardless where you were it would then show you on the bottom where it was playing on what time in your neighborhood so you didn't have to go look for a newspaper and um so that's that's how we were going to start because that was the cheapest way and we didn't have a lot of money and um uh, you know, it, the cable operators that we spoke to, you know, because we needed to get on cable systems and they were like, oh, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to tell people what's in the movies because we want them staying home and watching HBO. And we were like, do you really think that, you know, an 18 year old kid going on a date wants to stay home and watch HBO? They want to go to the movies. And, you know, I want to go to the movies. And so the cable operators didn't get it. And um you know, so we ended up not doing it. And then, you know, when we started to see where we were successful, um, it was the world of entertainment. It wasn't just the film business. And it was we were all about pop culture. Uh, and, you know, now I think he is a little too U.S. centric. Um, I think the, the geography of, of the media world has changed dramatically. The technology has changed dramatically. And I don't think that, you know, particularly here in the U.S., um, you know, the powers that be have kind of realized that and adjusted to the change. They try and hold on to what was as opposed to imagine what can be. Sure, sure. Well, and so you've, you know, you've been at the forefront of outreach and growth internationally and through Maton Development Group. Um, you know, you've been delivering what what we package so well, Western entertainment to Chinese audiences 
um, you know, us being on, on stateside, we hear a lot of different stories in regards to um, the idiosyncrasies of dealing with a, a much larger Chinese market. What are some of the some of the nuances that you've had to navigate with Meitan and, and dealing in China? Um, well, you know, I did a bunch of stuff in Russia. Um, I had a big TV show in Russia. I figured they have a, so many problems. They had enough reading Dostoevsky that they need soap operas and <laughs> Yeah, you know, something to get their mind off of the problem. So Anna um, just got them all down. Got it. <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, I kind of moved from Russia to China. And um, it was really um, interesting. And coming from the family background that I am, you know, my parents, again, that immigrant mentality, you were unbelievably respectful um, and stuff. And that's kind of the way I approach these different countries that I go into. Um I'm not there to change the government. I'm not there to do that kind of stuff. I'm there to like give them something to take their mind off their problems, you know, uh, for the most part. So in China, um, where we were successful and continue to be successful, um, we're in China now 12 years, is Chinese people are very proud. See, when when the Soviet Union fell apart, um, the U.S., we were the center of the world. We thought we could do whatever we want. We control everything. And, you know, now China's arisen as the power in the East and we're the power in the West. But we realized that everything, that Chinese people are happy to be Chinese. And so we program only in Mandarin in China and we programming to the specific taste of the Chinese audiences and stuff. You give me an example. So like, you know, here we have E! News Daily and, you know, celebrity news is turned into TMZ and let's find someone cheating on their girlfriend or their wife and we'll expose them and ruin their life. In China, it's much more sweet and gentle. You know, it's like when you interview Tom Cruise here, it's like, so tell us about Scientology and, you know, that, that, that. In China, it's like, well, what do you do with your kids on the weekend? And... um so we, we've been very cognizant of that. And, you know, I kind of like my relationship to doing stuff all over the world. And he's in 142 countries now, by the way. So, you know, we, we have to realize that there's a big world out there. But, you know, when I would go to my mom's house and, um, you know, after my dad passed, my mom lived in Florida. And I go, uh, oh, tonight I want to go to eat Italian food at eight o'clock. And she'd go. No, you know, um, we're going to Delhi at 5.30. And I'm like, no, no, I don't eat until 8 o'clock and I want Italian. And she'd be, you know what, if you don't like the rules of this house, go somewhere else. And that's kind of what the way I deal with China and stuff like that is I'm there to entertain the people. I'm not there to change their government or make political commentary and stuff like that. And I'm just respectful of that they have a different way than we do. And, you know, so that's now allowed us to be pretty successful there. That's neat. I, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting about you is that you've been celebrated uh, domestically and internationally. I know you were the first recipient of the Aaron Spelling Award here in the United States, and you also received an award for what you've accomplished in China. Um, tell me what recognition uh, means to you personally, professionally. I mean, we, we all who are out there trying to innovate, and I'm not putting myself in your class. I, I'd love to be, but I'm not. Uh, the reality, though, is is that that being recognized for uh, standing out and doing neat, doing things that other people appreciate 
uh, is generally speaking something that that feels really good. How important has it been to you, uh, particularly as you've uh, moved on to the later stages of your career, that people recognize that you know Larry Namer changed entertainment? Yeah, it's a weird feeling, kind of quite honestly. Um, you know, once in a while, it hit, I, I don't really get caught up in the fame and all that kind of stuff, but every once in a while, something happens. When I started doing stuff in China, um, my partner, I have a woman partner in Beijing, and she would introduce me to people there, and she'd be explaining, you know, he's the guy that started E, and it's now a heart of 140 countries, and, um, you know, changed the world of entertainment. And I'd see like a blank look on people's face. And I'm like, mm, okay. And then all of a sudden I would hear someone say in Chinese, ah, talk soup, talk soup. And I go like, <laughs> holy shit, they know talk soup in China. I said, that's pretty cool. But I think the one that kind of pops out as the one that I personally take as like a wild moment. Um, you know, people say like, what's your proudest moment? And they expect me to say E. Um, you know, and again, he is, you know, 142 countries and value up in five plus billion dollars and stuff like that. And it, it is arguably the number one influencer of pop culture in the world. And, and that's cool. I, you know, I get it. But I did a, um, uh, I decided I was on a train from Shanghai back to Beijing. And I decided that I'm funny and that I'm going to write comedy. And because I've never written comedy in my life. Um, and people say that, you know, that's the hardest thing to do. And, you know, you can't write comedy for culture you are not part of. I said, OK, I could do that. So I wrote this story outline about the contradictions of modern Chinese life. What happens when you have incredible economic growth in a short period of time and people's social skills don't grow as quick as their bank account? You know, it's like you look at the rich Arabs and Chinese and Russians that were in Gucci this and Prati that and gold chains and all of that stuff. So I wrote the um, I wrote this thing and I gave it to my partner and she loved it. She said, could I take this to the TV station? Well, the TV station, the biggest station in China is called um, CCTV8. And they apologize that they only reach 1.1 billion people. Oh. Um, and well, you got you to start somewhere. <laughs> he said, you know, I brought it to them and they really like it. And the, the head of the state, the channel wants to meet the writer. So I arranged dinner. So we go to dinner and I'm sitting waiting for them to come in. They come in and she's talking in Mandarin. And I, I know enough Mandarin that I understand the guy is saying, no, no, I want to meet the writer. This is a white guy. And I'm like, <laughs> really? You think so? And, you know, the guy was educated in the West. He turns to English and he goes, no, he, I didn't make, me make any offense, but I never thought this was written by anybody other than a Chinese person um, because it really was insightful. Not rich is good or poor is good, a city is good or rural is, is good. And he goes, but he goes, you know, we're Communist Party TV and you're an American. I can't put this on television. I went, uh, okay. And two weeks later, he calls back and says, you know, I went to the propaganda department with it because I liked it so much. And of course, they know who you are. And in China, they do have a propaganda department. Um, and they said, I can do it. And I said, great. You know, what do you want to pilot? He goes, no, I want to order um, 36 episodes. 
I'm like 36. <laughs> so yeah, so it ended up, we did 72 episodes of this comedy. Um, and it gets nominated at the Asia TV Awards in Singapore in the best sitcom category. It's the only sitcom from China that was nominated. We didn't win, but I said, you know what? This is actually pretty cool. The funniest TV show in China is written by a New York Jew. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you can't make that stuff up, right? That's, that's, no, that's... no. So, you know, to me that, you know, I'm going, okay. I figured out that people like Hollywood gossip, you know, but writing a comedy in a language I don't speak for a culture I didn't grow up in. I said, that's pretty cool. That's, that's amazing. You should be very proud. I can see why you are. Um, so not only have you, have you partaken in, you know, in lending your influence to, you know, outside of the U S but you also are an advisor to Microsoft of all places. And which is obviously very, very cool. And, um, I wanted to ask about, you know, what has come up to the forefront recently, which is AI and, you know, the entertainment age and, entertainment industry having some, some, uh, you know, that AI is on the radar. And, and I know that a lot of content creators, a lot of like my wife's an author, she's very well aware of, of AI and, and you know, how it, how it could be a help, but also how it could be a, a complete threat to, to her livelihood. Um, what do you think about AI? How do you think that um, that might help or hurt trends in the future for for entertainment and streaming services in particular sure um I, i'm a big believer that you know you can't stop technology from marching on i mean i think you could look at the music industry for years they the industry was like we're not gonna let digital music happen it's you know it's against whatever and you know that they let you know the the growth of itunes and you know all of the the music streaming services but with AI, um, th there's the good and the bad. Um, I do, if I would do a story outline, I've been using AI for as long as ChatGPT has been around, you know, the first iterations. So normally it would take me five days to write a story outline for a series. With ChatGPT 4 now, um, it takes it about 30 seconds to spit it out and takes me about one hour to edit it. And people go, you know, people worried about it. I go, you know, if you could work out a system where you could still get paid for the, what used to be five days work, but it only takes you one hour. Why wouldn't you want to do that? You can go on vacation. You can spend time with your kids. You could write more. Uh, you could learn how to play pickleball and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So there's all this good stuff. Now, there is the chance of bad stuff happening. So you put this tool in the hands of people who want to do bad, they can. But this is where I think our legislators need to kind of catch up with the technology and stuff. Uh, for example, a 12-year-old kid who wants to get in the car and drive can't do that because, hey, he's only 12 and you can't do it. But when he gets to be 18, he's got to take driving lessons. He's got to learn how to do it. He's got to take a test to pass. And then there are rules of the road that you have to follow, or there are penalties. We don't have any of that for technology and stuff. And it's mm. the AI is going to happen. And there's so much good stuff. It's helping with medical research and all kinds of 
stuff that we need we need a body of law, a body of regulation that at least curtails the bad stuff. But you know, some of the other stuff is just us learning how to develop it. I mean, we develop all these AI avatars and stuff like that. And um, you know, basically, you know, an AI avatar is a psychopath because they they just don't know what's good and what's bad. They didn't. And when you think about humans, you know, we grow up, we have a little family, um, we have mothers and fathers, and then we go to school. And so if I were to say to you, you know, uh, take a knife and stick it in towel, you go, no, no, I can't do that. And the reason is because you've been brought up in such a way that you know that you're not supposed to stick someone with a knife. Um, the AI models have to go through this growth trade period where they begin to humanize, where they begin to empathize. So they know, so they at least understand good and bad, and it's much harder to get them to do bad things. Hmm. That's fascinating. You know, a, a couple of funny things. One is uh, a, a funny story. It actually happened today. My son, uh, who is in England studying abroad uh, this this year, sent a picture to me and, and uh, his mother of him, uh, apparently him, it was a picture that he took from TV. He was at the soccer game and 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 uh, Everton uh, scored a goal. And there's a blurred image of him raising his hands and he circled and he said, there's me at the soccer game. And my ex-wife said, well, that, that doesn't even look like you. How do we know it's you? And I I went to Dali, which is Chat GPT's, uh, you know, image of, uh, you know, companion. And I asked it to take that image and add Elvis Presley on the bottom right of the image. And it did immediately, right? And I, I posted that and I said, well, I'm not sure if that's you, but how did you guys miss that Elvis Presley was sitting on the bottom <laughs> right, right? So so, so one of the really, uh, you know, potentially dangerous, I mean, from an entertainment standpoint, it could end up, it, 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 there's a lot of entertainment value, but there's a lot of uh, risk associated with uh, poorly governed or not governed AI. And I think you, you, you touched it, uh, you touched on it. One of the reasons that we have rules of the road is for the safety and benefit of of everyone. Uh, and I hope and I expect, uh, and I know the EU is uh, actually leading there more so than than we are so far in the US, uh, that there will be rules of the roads around generative AI. Uh, my, I have a startup that's in AI. I'm a huge believer in the space. I think the the opportunities there are enormous. At the same time, the risks are great, and and I think that you know you, we we probably have a very similar uh, viewpoint of of that. Um, let's, let's, I, I, we're almost out of time and I want to ask you, uh, I have my one last question that PJ will, uh, will end us, uh, will send us, uh, into the sunset. My question to you is about building and selling businesses. So you, you sold, uh, I believe entertainment was originally bought by Comcast. They, they were, uh, they came in, uh, along with Disney and eventually became the majority owners. I think now it's part of NBC universal. Can you tell us what are your guiding principles and particularly during that time period when you're thinking about shifting from uh, running a business to maybe selling it. Are there any principles that, you know, if we have uh, listeners who maybe have built a business, uh, obviously probably not on the scale of what you built, but they've built a successful business and they're thinking about uh, exiting. Are there any really important uh, lessons that you learned or or important considerations that you recommend they take that they, they keep in mind? Yeah, I think, you know, um, for entrepreneurs, the fun is in the startup, quite honestly. I mean, uh, I, you know, I can still consider myself a content creator or a creative or, you know, whatever, but, you know, we grew so big so fast that, um, I, I found myself 
spending all my time doing budgets and board meetings and, you know, doing all this corporate stuff and doing very little of what I love. So um, I wanted to get back to that. And, you know, then you have to measure that against valuations and all kinds of stuff. You go, okay, if I were to leave today versus what it could be worth, you know, in X years from now, um, is it worth it? Um, you know, do, do I leave some of that money behind in order to go on? And then, you know, quite honestly, when you hit a certain point in what the valuations are that you're going to sell out, you realize that, you know, you, you create a generational wealth or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, how many yachts do I, you know, I, I don't do any of that stuff anyway, but how many houses do you need? How many yachts do you need? How many Mercedes, you know, um, I'd, I'd rather do what makes me happy. Um, and when it gets to the point where the companies get so big and so complicated, you're no longer doing what you love, then it's time to leave. Mm. Very true. That's a wow. great, it's a great call out. If, if, and you know what, it's, it's tough because you, you get addicted, I think, and maybe addiction is too strong a word. So let's just say you become accustomed to being, uh, the, the leader, the CEO, there's prestige associated with that. And oftentimes you have lost connection with what got you started and you've become something else. Uh, you become a, a business person as opposed to, uh, an, you know, as, as opposed to whatever it was that got you started. Uh, and now, as you said, you, you're finding yourself wrapped up in uh, P&Ls and, you know, and cost of customer acquisition and things that are not the reasons you got in the business. Uh, and it is hard to recognize that the moment has arrived where the right thing for you to do uh, is 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 exit. I've had uh, several exits, and every time there was a feeling of how do I leave? I mean, this is my baby. I, I built it. Uh, hmm. But but recognizing that it's the right time, it is is not a science. It's an art. Uh, it does have a lot to do, in my experience, and from other people that we've spoken to, with recognizing that you're not having fun anymore. That you're not having fun anymore. Now, not all of us have the privilege of being able to make the determination on that basis, right? Uh, but if you are in a position where you can make that, uh, where where there is the opportunity to exit, and whether it's generational wealth or just you know sufficient numbers to justify exiting and put you on a path to start something new, uh, and you're not having fun, that's a pretty good marker. So, a good call out. Thank you, Larry, for that. Yeah, no kidding. It's like uh, it's like successing yourself out of joy. Right. Like uh, <laughs> it kind of morphs into something else. Um, Larry, first of all, thank you so much. The The time we've spent with you. I, I do have one more question, but the time we spent with you has been enlightening and fantastic. I, I do have to say I'm not a, an art major or anything, but that picture behind you, uh, I have been scheming about how to get it into my house is because it looks like a Jackson Pollock. I don't know what it is, but it's uh it's very, very cool. So it's a Jackson Pollock <laughs> from, from aesthetic standpoint. Well yeah. done, sir. Well done. Um, but really one of the things that, that we love to ask people who are on the show are, you know, what, what piece of advice would you give someone who's just starting out, who's aspiring, who's like, Hey, maybe I can, maybe I can be a successful entrepreneur. Maybe I can do something in media. What, what one piece of advice would you give to someone just starting out? Well, I, I think, you know, we kind of touched on it before and that's the whole thing about self-assessing and getting your ego out of the way and realizing everything you come up with is not necessarily going to be a good idea or a doable idea. 
Um, like I say, the biggest problem I see is people just stick with stuff too long. And again, it's not like the idea could have been good when you had it, but the environment has changed, technology has changed, uh, all kinds of reasons. And you got to learn to just go, oops, next, you know, and let let the bad stuff go and get on to the stuff that really could materialize. Again, the thing that you have is time and time is finite. And if you don't apply it in the right places and you stick with stuff too long, you're wasting the time that you could have been spent on the next thing that maybe could have been successful. Yeah, that's great. Friends, our, our guest today was uh, the one and only Larry Namer. He is uh, one of the top uh, names and for good reason in the entertainment industry. He he has changed uh, entertainment in, in ways that uh, virtually everyone now globally uh, has come to experience on a personal level. Uh, Larry, it's been a great, great honor and a privilege to have you with us today. Uh, we're grateful uh, that you chose to spend time with us. And, uh, you know, what? Maybe as a as a last thing, if if someone is is uh, interested in uh, learning more about what Mayton is doing or what you're doing with uh, with your global media group, uh, where would they go to find out more? Well, probably you know you go to the wiki page, of course, or just Google my name, and you come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, where I, I I I'm actually different. I hire a publicist to keep me out of the press. Um, and, and she she cracks up. She said, "Larry, everybody wants a magazine cover, and you pay me so that you'll never be on a magazine cover." And I went exactly. Um, I, I I like my simple life, and I want my kids to grow up being good human beings and not spoil little rich kids and stuff like that. So it's um, anyway, it's been fun being here. Well, good luck with that because there are probably uh, something like six thousand Google pages about you. So yeah, just yeah. I, I don't know if you know. That. <laughs> There's a lot. A lot That's of a it. Lot. Is, a lot of it's not true, but some of it is. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Larry Namer, thank you so much for being with us today. And that's a wrap, folks. Like what you heard and want to support the show? Please follow our page on LinkedIn and Facebook. Visit us on YouTube. And please like and rate us on all of your favorite podcast streaming services. You can also see exclusive content, subscribe for free to our weekly blog, support our sponsors, and soon buy our merchandise at www.bravingbusiness.com. Thanks for being a part of our production, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast.